Is $30 billion the answer? The lead starts right now. Another troubled regional bank is about to get rescued. This time, the big banks are stepping in and they're bringing cash, lots of it. But will it be enough to ease market fears? Then, the terrifying reality about women's health care in America, the number of expectant moms dying from complications in pregnancy and during childbirth, that number is soaring, and some groups are hit worse than others. Plus, coming soon to a Florida beach near you, a 5,000-mile-wide blob of seaweed, and frankly, guys, it stinks. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our money lead in a $30 billion, with a B, dollar rescue plan. Moments ago, America's largest banks denounced that they are indeed going to step in to try and prevent what could lead to a domino effect that theoretically would wreck the economy. The group of banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, they are all going to provide a $30 billion rescue for San Francisco-based First Republic Bank. First Republic saw its stock plummet after two other banks failed over the weekend, and Moody's downgraded its outlook for the entire banking industry. Stocks rebounded today over the rescue news. The Dow closing up 373 points, signaling that experts are, at least for now, breathing a sigh of relief that further economic damage may be avoided or at least delayed. CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, tell us about this rescue plan. How would it work? Well, Jake, this is a major development, essentially a cash infusion into First Republic, giving it a sense of financial firepower that SVB did not have at its fingertips. I want to read for you for a moment, Jake, the statement we just got from the Treasury Department, essentially saying 11 banks in total, 11 banks announced $30 billion in deposits into First Republic Bank. The show of support by a group of large banks is most welcome and demonstrates the resilience of the banking system, essentially patting these uh, banks on the back for stepping up here, uh, really arming First Republic with financial firepower in the event, Jake, that it sees customers move their money, similar to what we saw with SVB. So sort of essentially shielding First Republic if, in fact, it sees uh, significant problems in that way. It's also a sign of support, a really show of confidence from these major banks stepping up in this way, signaling that not only are they able to lend in this way, but they are willing to lend and perhaps also shoring up confidence for depositors. If you are at home and you have an account at First Republic Bank and you suddenly hear Wells Fargo, City Bank of America uh, is willing to step up and support this bank, well, maybe that makes you feel a bit more confident about leaving your money there as well. And Rahel, you just spoke uh, with an expert on the global market. What's the outlook on this bank turmoil from, as seen from the rest of the world? Well, he, I mean, look, he said it's net positive for sure, just for the, some, of, some of the same reasons that I just said. But in terms of volatility, which is really what I wanted to talk to him about in terms of what the outlook looks like from here, I want to show you, Jake, just over the last five sessions or so, the S&P, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot over the last five days, just how volatile the markets have been. They've closed up, they've closed down, they've been everywhere in between. And so when I asked Brian Levitt what the outlook looks like moving forward, this is what he told me, Jake. He said, look, we may not be out of the woods with regards to potentially seeing other bank challenges. However, policymakers stand ready to provide support and the decline in inflation and end of rate hikes ultimately should provide some optimism. So it may take us some time to get there, but hopefully those are the catalysts that ultimately lead to a bit more stability and calm in the markets, Jake. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Let's go now to CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju, who's on Capitol Hill. And Manu, 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified before Congress today trying to assure lawmakers and the public that America's money is safe, that the economy is stable. How did that go over? Yeah, members of the Senate Finance Committee are still uncertain about whether or not the emergency actions taken by the Biden administration will be enough to stave off a wider spread meltdown of the U.S. financial system. Even as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen defended the administration's actions so far, said taxpayer monies would not be used for any sort of bailout and said the banking system, in her words, were, quote, sound. She also said Americans can be assured that the deposits are safe. Now, at this hearing, there was also ample discussion about other issues, namely the a major issue looming over Congress about raising the national debt limit. Yellen once again made her call for the debt limit to be increased without any conditions. House Republicans want spending cuts. She wants to keep those two issues separate. She also criticized House Republican plans for contingency plans in case of a debt default to prioritize payments the federal government would made. She called those dangerous and risky. And at one point, things got very tense. Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, who has been pushing for some changes to Social Security to to shore up its long-term solvency, said the, that Yellen was not telling the truth when saying that President Biden was willing to talk to senators about this issue. The president knows many people on Social Security. Then why doesn't the president care? He cares very deeply. Then where is his plan? He stands ready to work with Congress. That's a lie, address. because when a bipartisan group of senators has repeatedly requested to meet with him about social so that somebody who is a current beneficiary will not see her benefits cut by 24%, we have not heard anything on our request. And we've made multiple requests to meet with the president. Now, I caught up with Senator Cassidy after that exchange, and he said he was not calling Yellen a liar. He said that someone from the White House or some administration official was passing along false talking points, even as some Democrats took exception with his remarks. Now, of course, the White House has said that changes to Social Security would not be part of any sort of debt ceiling negotiation, even as Republicans pressed Yellen to at least negotiate with House Republicans going forward. Now, Yellen did say that the White House is willing, the president is willing to talk with House Republicans. Republicans about the debt ceiling, but she says any talks about spending cuts must be kept separate from the issue of raising the debt ceiling to avoid a debt default. So a major stalemate still looms here between House Republicans and the Biden administration over such a huge fiscal issue as this looms over Congress and the White House heading into a potentially very consequential summer. All right, Mani Raju, thank you so much. Here to discuss Art Laffer, the former economic advisor for President Reagan and founder of Laffer Associates. Uh, Art, thanks for joining us. Um, the major banks are stepping in to rescue uh, First Republic Bank. Uh, do you think that this move will stop uh, the small bank failure contagion, or is this just a, a temporary fix? Well, it'll surely delay it and probably slow it down a lot. And the nice thing is it gives time to this administration to figure out a game plan, Jake, as to how to handle if more banks go have these same types of problems, they can then have a plan to really address the issue fundamentally. My guess is that they should insure all depositors uh, in all banks, on federally regulated banks, on their deposits, that there never will be a default on those depositors. That, that's the right thing to do. But uh, they're, they're clearly it's good that the banks are stepping in to help Republic. This um, all started last week with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, I've heard a number of conservatives, Pat Toomey, Gary Cohn, say that that bank, Silicon Valley Bank, failed because of just an old-fashioned run on the bank. There wasn't any other particular reason. They disagree with President Biden and others who say that deregulation in 2018 played a role. Um, 
What's to explain, if it's just an old-fashioned run on the bank for Silicon Valley, what's to explain these two other banks and these larger fears about the industry in general? Well, it's not just one bank. I mean, the whole system is under a lot of pressure, Jake. I mean, interest rates rose dramatically, which means that banks that had long-term government assets, those assets fell in value uh, if marked to market. And short-term deposits cost more to have. And so what you have is your income is being reduced and your expenses are being increased and it just flipped over. And Silicon Valley, from what I understand, and I'm not an insider on that at all, but from what I understand, just got caught in the rise in interest rates and that flipped the bank over. A lot of financial institutions are facing this sort of problem. What, what surprises me is that the regulators at the San Francisco Fed, uh, the supervisors, the, the supervisory group, didn't catch it and didn't understand their balance sheets. They didn't have enough reserves to match this shortfall of, of revenues. And that, that's really what happened with Silicon Valley and also Signature. And now it's coming to Republican. It'll probably come to a lot of other banks as well, as long as interest rates stay high. Treasury Secretary Yellen testified that the U.S. banking system is secure. Uh, take a listen uh, to Larry Summers, uh, an economist with the Clinton and Obama White House, what he had to say about this. I don't think this is a time for uh, panic or alarm. Americans' money is safe. Do you agree? Yes, I do agree. I mean, I think it's not a time for panic. I think the, if the administration had made a different decision on Sunday, I would not agree. But they made the right decision. They pulled the guns out and they guaranteed all the depositors. Once they've done that, I think they've assured all the depositors that they're not going to lose their money. And one thing that a run on the bank is, is when you really are worried as to whether you can get your money out of that bank. And once they're assured that they're not going to lose their money, I think, I think this really sets the tone and, and makes the banking system a lot more secure, Jake. All right. Art Laffer, uh, former economic advisor for President Reagan and founder of Laffer. Uh, firm, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Coming up, another phone call captures Donald Trump pressuring lawmakers to overturn election results. He really had Georgia on his mind. Then three more people charged with murder and the death of a man who was smothered on the ground for 12 minutes at a mental health facility. Plus an update on the American drone downed by Russian fighter jets and the debris being scooped out of the water by one of the United States adversaries. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen says New York prosecutors, in his view, have a, quote, tremendous amount of information, unquote, as the prosecutors work to build a case against the former president in connection with that hush money payment to former porn star and director Stormy Daniels. As CNN's Paula Reid reports for us now, Cohen is also suggesting this investigation could be broader than most people seem to believe. Mr. President! Former President Trump facing increasing legal jeopardy and criminal investigations in multiple jurisdictions. In Washington, D.C., a former White House aide, Margot Martin, who followed Trump to Mar-a-Lago, appeared before a grand jury as part of the special counsel's investigation into classified documents found at the Florida estate. And his former fixer and personal attorney, Michael Cohen, appearing twice this week before a grand jury in New York, investigating hush money payments to adult film star Storm. Daniels. It was like a, um, it was being on trial. Cohen had already met with investigators 20 times to share what he knows. What I can tell you is that their questioning of me started out at like 35,000 feet. Okay. And by the time that I hit the 20th interview, we were down to like three feet ready to land. The 
um, grand jury was the actual takeoff back to, um, we'll call it accountabilityville. Cohen helped facilitate $130,000 in payments to Daniels right before the 2016 election. Daniels also spoke with investigators Wednesday via Zoom. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has invited the former president to testify, as is the right of potential defendants in New York, but he declined. And his lawyer says if he is indicted, that would actually catapult him back to the White House. I think it will, will ultimately embolden him, embolden his supporters and, and, and give him more strength because he will be proven to be wrongly accused. And down in Georgia, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution spoke with five jurors who served on the Fulton County Special Grand Jury investigating Trump's actions in the state after the 2020 election, revealing they had heard a previously undisclosed recording of a conversation between Trump and the late former Georgia House Speaker David Ralston, where Trump pushed for him to call a special legislative session to overturn Joe Biden's win in the state. A source confirmed the existence of a recording to CNN. One of the jurors recalled Ralston basically cut the president off, telling Trump, I will do everything in my power that I think is appropriate. Ralston has since died, and the recording has not been made public. But it echoes the now infamous call made to Georgia's Secretary of State around the same time. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. And we're learning special counsel Jack Smith has cast a truly wide net in his investigation into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. We've learned that over two dozen people connected to that resort have been subpoenaed. We're talking about everyone from attorneys who represent him to housekeepers, groundskeepers, even servers have been asked for testimony. Investigators want to know what, if anything, they've seen or heard about documents or even boxes that could contain classified documents. Jake. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. There is a new chief judge in Washington, D.C., who could help determine the fate of Donald Trump when it comes to investigations led by the Justice Department. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Plant sat down with this new judge and the judge he's replacing. Caitlin, tell us about Judge uh, Bosberg and, and what he, he's inheriting here. Well, he's going to be inheriting a lot, an investigation that's been moving at a really fast clip and has been seeking lots of information. That's the investigation led by special counsel Jack Smith into the Mar-a-Lago documents, classified documents uh, potentially kept by the former president, as well as the January 6th political investigation around the election. And so Jeb Bosberg, this judge, he's becoming the chief judge of the D.C. District Court, but he's been a judge since the Obama administration. He's a longtime creature of Washington. Um, he is the type of person who, uh, whose father is a lawyer, who knows personally many Supreme Court justices, is close friends with some of them even, uh, and has previously worked as a judge, uh, not just in the district court in D.C., but also over the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, this court where he uh, has has tried to bring transparency and also in that court has really been harsh towards prosecutors. But in this context, there's big questions for how he's going to handle his role as the chief judge now. What he will do is have to determine uh, how far prosecutors can get if they're seeking information that people are challenging when they're issuing grand jury subpoenas. So witness testimony, document subpoenas, search warrants. Where does he land on that? And how quickly does he make calls there 
Judge Howell, Beryl Howell, is the judge who's outgoing as the chief. She moves very fast. She advocates for transparency. Uh, and she has been a judge that's been very pro-investigator. She's given the Justice Department a lot of leeway. Uh, Bozberg, when I asked him, he he didn't say anything about what he, how he would rule on these things, but he did pledge that uh, he would try to be transparent as possible on sealed proceedings. But he is going to take over potentially many of these cases that are right in the middle of an investigation that's quite serious right now. Also with the investigation into Biden's handling of classified documents and the U.S. attorney in, in Delaware's investigation into Hunter, would he supervise those as well? He wouldn't. So the U.S. attorney's investigation into Hunter Biden, that, as far as we know, is in Delaware. So that's a different court. He Completely doesn't sit different. on that okay. court. Uh, as far as the Biden documents go, that potentially could be before this court in Washington, D.C. That is the court he's on, the district court. Uh, but at this time, I don't believe we have any knowledge of whether there's grand jury activity there or even the type of challenges that would go before him. All right. Very interesting. Caitlin, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, who served on the January 6th committee. We also have with us former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, you're intimately familiar with this New York office. When you hear Michael Cohen suggest that he was asked about topics broader than just the hush money scheme uh, to keep Stormy Daniels quiet, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me that the DA is trying to look at every angle here, as good prosecutors, good investigators should. I think the Stormy Daniels hush money payment remains the primary focus. But you're always looking as a prosecutor, are there more charges? Are there more counts here? First of all, you want to give yourself more ways to win, more ways to get a conviction. And second of all, you want to make sure you're accounting for any potential criminality. So I think that's a smart move by the DA, and it's not unexpected. Uh, Congressman, I want to ask you about this. Other recording that we just learned about that the Georgia grand jury reportedly just heard, we learned this from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, of Trump allegedly pressuring the Georgia State House Speaker to push for a special session of the legislature, again, to overturn Biden's victory based on these election lies. Did the January 6th committee know about this call? What's your reaction to the news? Yeah, I mean, this is, for me, this is news, um, you know, and I think I'm not sure, obviously, where this recording was, but we know that the gentleman who was on the recording is, is no longer with us. Um, so I'm glad that the grand jury is being presented. And I think this is not necessarily probably anything that in and of itself will be any really different than what we've heard when it came to uh, uh, Secretary Raffensperger. But what it'll add is another layer onto that. So if the president and his defense team have said, well, you know, what we said was actually we meant this or we had no intention of actually overturning an election. We were just hoping. Well, now, if you compare this with that, I'm sure in many cases this takes that argument away. And now you can have different layers of a president potentially saying, hey, look, I know I lost Georgia, but uh, I'd rather just win Georgia. And so if I'm the president's defense team, I'm going to be a little nervous about this for sure. Ellie, uh, the phone call, if it is a, as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has described it, and they talked to a number uh, of, of uh, members of the grand jury, um, it's, it's, a, it's Trump pushing the state house speaker in Georgia to reconvene a, a meeting of the legislature so they can then overturn over the will of the voters in Georgia and, and give the electoral votes to Trump instead of uh, Biden. I, I don't know if that sounds illegal on its, on its face. W what is the significance legally? 
So I think the significance, Jake, is it's part of a pattern. It shows intentionality. If I'm the prosecutor here, I would argue this wasn't just Donald Trump having a bad day lashing out at, let's say, Brad Raffensperger. This was an ongoing effort over the course of several weeks. And we now know of three calls. We know, of course, that Trump called the secretary of state and asked him to find certain votes. We also know, and we've heard the audio publicly of Trump's call to an investigator, Francis Watson, asking her to investigate and try to find voter fraud. And now this is a third piece that he called the then speaker of the Georgia House and asked him to convene a special legislature. So I think any of those events in isolation may not constitute a crime per se. But as a prosecutor, you're trying to argue that this is all part of an intentional pattern that that taken together amounts to criminality. And Congressman, I want to get your reaction to something Donald Trump's current attorney said on CNN last night. Take a listen. I'm not saying it's a great thing if he gets indicted. I said if they indict him, if they indict him, it will embolden him. I think it will, you know, because he will win this case, it will catapult him to the White House. His reasoning is any indictment will embolden Trump supporters, will embolden Trump. Uh, Do you agree? And do you think him even talking this way suggests that it's a fait accompli? The lawyers themselves think that Trump will be indicted. Yeah, I certainly think they're out there prepping the ground. And uh, it's, it's a smart political move to go out and basically try to take the narrative before the, the prosecutors can take the narrative from you. I do think he's a little bit right. I think within the kind of Trump circle, this will, this will be a circle the wagon moment. It's kind of like you're under artillery attack, so everybody's going to gather in the, in the bunker. But what this will do is those that are on the fence between, say, a DeSantis and a Trump or Nikki Haley and a Trump, here's where they might start going, I, I think it's time we have to move on. Whether you even agree with this or not, it may be time to move on. You add this to Georgia and potential January 6th charges now, uh, I think it could spell real doom for Trump politically. Ellie, do you think prosecutors are listening closely every time a member of the Trump legal team speaks? Oh, for sure, Jake, for two reasons. First of all, of course, look, if the other coach is talking about his playbook, you are listening and you are taking notes. And also secondarily, and maybe even more important, the statements that a person's agent or representative makes on their behalf are at times admissible against that person in court. So it may be possible that they can use some of these statements as evidence in a case. All right, Ellie Honig and Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, more and more expectant moms are dying due to complications during pregnancy and childbirth. Experts worry this trend in the United States is going to keep getting worse. The terrifying statistics next. A dramatic spike in the maternal death rate in the United States tops our health lead today. An alarming new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows the number of women who died due to pregnancy or childbirth complications rose significantly in 2021. And the death rate among black women is twice as high as that of white women. Here to discuss is Dr. Megan Ranney, she's the Deputy Dean of Public Health at Brown University. Thanks so much for being here. So the maternal death rate in the U.S. has been a problem for decades. Why is it still an issue today? Well, the decades of issues reflect so many of the things that you and I have discussed. The inequitable access to health care. We see higher rates of maternal mortality in states that have not expanded Medicaid access. It's about lack of pre- and postpartum care. So many women fail to show up for visits to an obstetrician in that first or second trimester, don't get care until it's too late to address many of those preventable causes of maternal mortality. And then, of course, there is structural racism. We know that chronic stress plays a role not just in 
setting up black women for all the things that raise rates of maternal mortality, like high blood pressure or asthma, but also are related to their care in the healthcare system. There's story after story about women, uh, women who are well-educated, high-income. Um, there was even a woman who worked at the CDC on maternal mortality, black woman, was unable to advocate and get herself the proper care and died in the postpartum period. So it's this combination of factors that continue to put the U.S. far behind our peer countries um, among industrialized nations. Yeah, I think I heard an interview with her mom on NPR this morning, a shocking story. Um, but I can't help but notice that, that it, it went up again in 2021. Mm-hmm. What role did COVID and the pandemic play in this, if any? COVID was a huge driver of that rise in 2021. And in fact, we have preliminary data showing that rates dropped in 2022 as COVID, as many of us got vaccinated and as the new variants became less serious. So let me be clear that if you are unvaccinated, pregnant, and catch COVID, your rate of intensive care unit admission, uh, putting, being put on a ventilator or, God forbid, dying, is somewhere between four and ten times that of someone who is pregnant and does not catch COVID. So vaccination, first of all, is huge. But secondly, being pregnant and catching COVID puts you at a large risk. And most of that increase in maternal mortality in 2021 was due to COVID-related death. So what does society, what does Joe Biden, what do the governors need to do to start reversing this trend? So the first and biggest thing is to expand Medicaid. We have seen study after study showing that states with Medicaid expansion have lower rates of pre-delivery as well as post-delivery mortality. So that's the, you know, make sure that everyone has access to insurance and that it's easy to get. The second is to make sure that there is access to obstetricians, even in rural areas. There are lots of closures of hospitals in rural areas. Many of the women uh, who are at highest risk of maternal mortality live more than 25 miles from an obstetrician, so making sure that there is that access in rural areas. And then the third thing is addressing all those problems that lead people to have a higher risk during pregnancy or immediately after delivery. So addressing rates of high blood pressure, addressing food access, addressing mental health, and then of course addressing the structural racism in the healthcare system. Jake, there have been studies showing that if women are treated by black doctors, their rate of mortality is lower in the peripartum period. So training up more black physicians will also help um, with these disparities in mortality rates. So I'm sure there are some pregnant women watching right now, Mm -hmm. and they're terrified uh, from this report. What reassurance can you provide for them? What recommendations? Look, I know they literally write books about what to do when you're pregnant, but quickly... The quick advice you can, you can give, what, what would you tell them to do to have the healthiest pregnancy as they can? So first and biggest thing, make sure you see that obstetrician in the early parts of your second trimester, if not before. Second, get your COVID vaccine. And if you're eligible, get boosted. Try to avoid catching COVID during pregnancy. And then the third thing is to make sure that you get access to the insurance that you are eligible for as a pregnant woman. You address mental health for expecting and new mothers. Um, what is access like for those experiencing uh, postnatal uh, uh, depression? So it's just like with all aspects of mental health in this country, there is an absolute dearth of therapists and psychiatrists who can treat women who are suffering from postpartum depression. It is absolutely an epidemic in this country, made worse by lack of parental leave, by issues with access to childcare 
all the things that combine to make being a parent in this country difficult add on to it the fact that uh, therapists are in short supply across the country. Women in the postpartum period are in no different position. Dr. Uh, Megan Rainey, uh, thank you, and congratulations on your new job. You're going to be going to Yale to be the dean of the School of Public Health. Is I that am, right? yeah. You're going to still keep coming on. I, that's on, up to you. But on yeah. the lead, right? Okay, <laughs> good. I think they have uh, studios in, uh, in, in uh, where is that, Connecticut somewhere? Yeah, somewhere in New somewhere Haven. Somewhere in yeah. New Haven, that's uh-huh. right. All right, Megan, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, also on our health lead, even though the RSV or respiratory virus surge from last fall and winter is over, uh, parents are still having a hard time getting hospital beds for their sick kids. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. And Elizabeth, what is behind this decline in access to pediatric beds? Jake, my colleague, Christina Zidanowitz, she talked to parents and to doctors, just heartbreaking stories of parents. The children need to be in the hospital and the parents have such a hard time accessing a bed. So let's talk about why that's happening. Because as you said, RSV is over. That's not the reason why. One of the reasons is the pediatricians and pediatric nurses have kind of been leaving the profession in in very disturbingly large numbers. Things were just so tough and so difficult during COVID. Also, also related to COVID, there's been an increase in need for mental health services for children. And so that is putting a demand on beds. And also, Dr. Rani referenced this, hospitals are closing. They are in particular often closing their pediatric units. Now, why would they close a pediatric unit over an adult unit? These hospitals are often struggling financially and kids don't make that much money. That's the problem. Take a look at this number. When you look at the percentage of children in this country who are on Medicaid, it's 39%. Only 19% of adults are on Medicaid. Medicaid pays hospitals at a terrible rate. Private insurance pays much better. Medicare pays much better. So when a hospital says, we're suffering, we need money, sometimes the kids are the first to go. Also, when a child is hospitalized, Jake, it's often for something like, let's say, asthma or or an infectious disease. That doesn't pay very well. Kids don't get, you know, coronary bypass. Kids don't get hip replacements. Those are the kinds of things that make hospitals money Those are the kind of things that adults get. So often hospitals will opt to fill those beds with adults rather than children. If only kids could vote, right, and give give, uh, political contributions. Right. What can be done, uh, besides my theoretical world, uh, what can be done to improve access to pediatric care for, for these kids? So I like your idea, Jake. I think uh, maybe they should try that. But in addition, what they could do is just increase Medicaid rates. I mean, they are so low compared to other types of insurance. Also, they could increase telemedicine. We heard Dr. Randy talking about access, and especially in a lot of rural parts of the U.S., it is hard to get to a pediatrician. And so sometimes a child then gets so sick, if the problem were taken care of at the beginning, maybe they wouldn't have gotten so sick and ended up in the hospital. So telemedicine could really help. All of these things require money. Jake? What happens if there's another surge of illnesses among kids like we had in the fall and the lack of hospital beds continues to be an issue? Yeah, I got to tell you, Jake, I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but I think you and I will be on your show talking about why didn't we learn something when this happened during RSV. Um, There are some things in the works to try to improve this, but I don't think anyone thinks this is going to be fixed soon. Yeah, a lot of politicians out there acting as if they're doing things for kids, but not a lot of them doing anything to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Coming up, the growing protests that forced Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to cut short a meeting with yet another world leader. Stay with us. (laughs) 
In our world lead, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is cutting short a trip to Germany amid ongoing protests back home against his plans to weaken Israel's independent judiciary, a dispute that the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, warns is bringing that country to the brink of civil war. During a news conference alongside German Chancellor Olaf Scholz today in Berlin, Netanyahu insisted his plans are not a threat to Israel's democracy, but tens of thousands of Israelis disagree and have taken to the streets for weeks. CNN's Hadass Gold spent the day out among the demonstrators. Jake, we are in Jerusalem at one of the dozens of protests across Israel today. The protesters here are students from Hebrew University, and they've made their way from the university through the surrounding streets, and they've ended up here actually in front of the entrance to the prime minister's offices. Now, these protesters, they are young, they are students, and they are very concerned about this massive judicial overhaul. They say that they worry about their future, they worry about minority rights, they worry that this overhaul, which will allow the Israeli parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions that would change how justices are chosen, they worry that it will destroy the independence of the Israeli judiciary and change the face of Israeli democracy. But supporters like Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whose office sits right here, he says that this is a sorely needed reform. That's been a long time coming that will help balance the Israeli branches of government. The Israeli President Isaac Herzog making an impassioned speech last night calling for compromise. He laid out his own proposed compromise and warning that Israel is on the brink of a civil war. I'm going to use a phrase I haven't used before. An expression that there is no Israeli who is not horrified when he hears it. Whoever thinks that a real civil war of human lives is a limit that we will not reach has no idea. Precisely now, in the 75th year of the state of Israel, the abyss is within touching distance. But Jake, almost as soon as the Israeli president finished speaking, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government rejected the proposed compromise, saying that it would only perpetuate the problems that they see and doesn't do enough. So now the question will be, what will the Israeli government and Netanyahu do next? Will they push forward with their very speedy legislation, saying that they want to get this done within the next few weeks before the Passover holidays? Or will there will finally be some sort of softening of the legislation, perhaps not a full compromise, but some sort of softening that will perchance perhaps help dampen this fervent emotion that you can see with these protesters here behind me. Jake. And our thanks to Hadass Gold for that report. Coming up next, a man dies after being essentially smothered for 12 minutes while in custody at a mental health facility. That man's family just saw the video. Hear their response next. In our national lead, three additional people in Virginia have been charged with second-degree murder after a man died at a state mental health facility, bringing the total number charged to 10. Prosecutors say 28-year-old Ivo Otonio was held on the ground and smothered for 12 minutes while in handcuffs and leg irons. This was done by seven sheriff's deputies. They were arrested Tuesday, and today three hospital employees were also charged. CNN's Brian Todd is in Virginia. My son was treated like a dog, worse than a dog. I saw it with my own eyes on the video. The family of 28-year-old Ivo Otieno, who died in custody, has now seen video of the fatal incident. At what point do we stop preserving life? At what point do we consider mental illness a crime? 
Prosecutors say Otieno was smothered to death by seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital employees, restraining him during intake at a mental health facility. Seven sheriff's deputies in Henrico County, Virginia, were arrested Tuesday and charged with second-degree murder. Why would any law enforcement officer put a knee on the neck of a person who is face down, handcuffed, and restrained? Ochena was arrested March 3rd after police say they responded to a burglary call next door, took him to the hospital for evaluation, where he became, quote, physically assaultive. After a weekend in jail, where prosecutors say video shows Otieno was pepper sprayed, punched, and mistreated, he was brought to the Central State Mental Facility on March 6th, where authorities allege he became combative. And the videos are never confrontational with them. He is not posing a threat to them. He's not violent or aggressive with them. Today, prosecutors announced three staffers at the mental health facility have also been arrested on second-degree murder charges. Ultimately, some central state um, people as well on top of them. No one assisting. In court this week, an early glimpse of the deputy's potential defense, one lawyer citing this. The ongoing issues that he had been, that they had been having with this uh, individual with regards to his disorderly conduct, with regards to his aggression, with regards to his resistance. But his family says what he needed was help. What do you want to see happen to these deputies, either of you? Justice. I would like them put away, if you ask me, for life. That they don't see the light of day again. What they did to my son was horrific. Horrific. We've reached out to the Central State Hospital Mental Health Facility for their response to three of their employees being charged with second-degree murder. We have not heard back. We have also reached out to the, to the attorneys identified so far for the seven deputies who have been charged. We've only heard back in detail from the lawyers for one of them, Deputy Bradley Diss, who told us that their client looks forward to being vindicated in court. Jake? All right. Brian Todd in uh, Dinwiddie, uh, Virginia, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up at the top of the hour... U.S. officials now believe Russia has some of the debris from the downed American drone they helped bring down. Should the Pentagon be worried? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a 5,000-mile-wide smelly blob of seaweed headed right towards Florida, inciting panic among beachgoers, business owners, and government officials. Plus... TikTok for TikTok, the Biden administration telling the Chinese government to heed its warning about the popular social media app or it will get banned. And leading this hour, video doesn't lie. That's what U.S. officials are saying after releasing the stunning video of the moments a Russian fighter jet hit an unmanned American drone, damaging the drone and causing it to go down in the Black Sea. Russia has claimed their jets did not touch the American drone, but since the video was released, Russian officials have been silent. This comes as the U.S. believes Russia has recovered some pieces of the drone. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Natasha Bertrand as National Security Spokesperson John Kirby says this video shows that clearly Russia has been, quote, flat out lying. This is the moment just before a Russian fighter jet collided with a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. The thick plumes of smoke, jet fuel being vented by the Russian Su-27 as it passes, We don't see the moment of impact. 
but here is the propeller of the MQ-9 Reaper drone undamaged, and here it is later, clearly damaged. It had to have been some kind of an impact. And I don't think, uh, you know, while the fuel spill on top of the uh, on top of the aircraft, on top of the MQ-9 would have been uh, significant, I don't think it would have caused that damage. The newly declassified footage appears to directly contradict Russia's claim that the aircraft did not make physical contact. There was no collision, you see that. The problem is that we, we didn't contact to this drone. The Russians have been just flat out lying, flat out lying about their account. The U.S. has not yet determined whether the pilots intended to directly hit the drone, forcing the U.S. military to crash the drone into the Black Sea some 80 nautical miles from land. We know that the intercept was intentional. Uh, we know that the aggressive behavior was intentional. We also know it was very unprofessional and very unsafe. Uh, the actual contact of the uh, fixed-wing uh, Russian fighter with our UAV, the physical contact of those two, not sure yet. But CNN is learning that the Russian pilots did not go rogue. U.S. officials familiar with the intelligence say the pilots were ordered to harass the drone by senior officials in Russia's defense ministry. The fact that we've seen uh, a pattern on the part of the forces of the Russian Federation suggests to us at least that, that there's at least some uh, senior level approval of this kind of activity. For now, the fate of the drone's wreckage remains unclear. The U.S. has no naval assets in the Black Sea that can readily retrieve it, and the Russians have already reached the crash site and recovered some small pieces of debris. But the U.S. took steps to wipe the drone's software, officials tell CNN, making it highly unlikely that Moscow will glean anything valuable from its remnants. We did take uh, mitigating measures, uh, so we are quite confident that whatever, uh, whatever was of value is no longer of value. Now, Jake, we are learning tonight that the U.S. is conducting an assessment of its drone operations over the Black Sea to try to figure out how to better deconflict with the Russians there. However, the drone operations have not stopped entirely. We are told that the U.S. actually sent the same model of drone up over the Black Sea in approximately the same area just hours after that incident with the Russian jet occurred, largely in order to survey the site and see whether the Russians were trying to collect any of the debris there. Jake. All right, Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our other world lead, Ukrainians are unwilling to let go of Bakhmut. The eastern city is now home to a population of just 3,000 Ukrainians after once posting a population of more than 70,000. As CNN's David McKenzie reports, Russian-backed leaders say Ukraine's grip on the city is becoming more difficult as one of the city's main roads faces significant and constant fire. This is the moment a Ukrainian soldier downs a Russian jet near Bakhmut, according to Ukrainian authorities. As both sides are publicly confident in their battle to control the city. With fewer than 3,000 civilians remaining, Bakhmut has been effectively destroyed amid the ongoing Russian offensive. But Ukrainians are unwilling to let go, despite their heavy losses. There was a clear position of the entire command. Strengthen the sector and destroy the occupiers to the maximum. To counter the onslaught, Ukraine needs equipment and ammunition. President Zelensky has long called for fighter jets. In a significant move today, Poland says it will provide several of its Soviet-era MiG-29 combat planes in the coming days. We will hand over four aircrafts to Ukraine. The remaining machines are being prepared and serviced for handover. 
A move Ukraine hopes will inspire others to speed up their support. It's particularly important to quickly provide Ukraine with the necessary ammunition. For both sides, the situation on the front line remains complicated. And troops from Russia's Wagner private military group have made very limited gains in the last week in Bakhmut. Gains that U.S. military officials say are coming at an enormous cost. Right now, there is intense fighting in and around Bakhmut, and the Russians are making small tactical advances, but at great cost. According to the American research group, the Institute for the Study of War, these small advancements at the great expense of manpower, artillery and equipment may hinder Wagner's ability to surround the city. Its chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has recruited as many as 40,000 prisoners for this fight, according to a White House official, has repeatedly criticized Moscow over their lack of ammunition to supply his fighters. But his mercenaries are holding firm, persisting with their offensive in and around Bakhmut. And so are the Ukrainian troops. The enemy constantly attempts to attack us, and we defend our positions quite effectively. We've been standing here for quite long already, and our brigade hasn't given up any positions. A show of defiance, as Ukraine hopes it will get more military support in time for a possible counteroffensive. Now, those MiGs are at least 30 years old, Jake, but certainly it could break a psychological barrier to get more attack weapons into this country. We spent time with volunteer forces here training uh, today who are trying to get ready for some kind of counteroffensive we believe may be coming. It's really those nuts and bolts ammunition soldiers to replace those who have been pulled off the front line, who have been lost tragically in this war, uh, to try shore up a counterattack and not just defend against those endless onslaughts from the Russian military and private military contractors. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Darren LaHood of Illinois. He's a member of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So a source says that the U.S. government believes Russia may have actually recovered some of the pieces of the downed drone. Uh, How confident is the intelligence community that they're not going to get anything sensitive? Well, we don't know that yet. Uh, Obviously, that's something that will anxiously await what the intelligence community gets back to the House Intelligence Committee on. But I would say this. I think we've seen uh, more provocative moves from Russia. Uh, We've seen an aggressiveness that maybe we haven't seen before. And obviously, we're going to watch and see uh, what, if anything, they recover. But I think it's been uh, alarming uh, what the Russians have engaged in over the last couple of days. And it's raised, uh, you know, a new awareness in Congress. Is the presiding theory that this was the Russian jets um, being provocative with the American drone, but they didn't mean to hit it? Or is the theory that they actually did? I don't think we know that yet, Jake. That's something we'll have to learn from the Intelligence Committee. Um, Earlier this week, I wanted to ask you, there there seems to be a division within the Republican Party uh, about how important it is for the U.S. to support Ukraine during this conflict. As you know, Florida Governor DeSantis uh, said uh, that supporting Ukraine, in his view, was not a vital national interest uh, for the U.S. Um, what, What do you think? Well, I think there's broad support within the Republican conference for Ukraine. But I would just I would also, with the caveat, say that it it can't be a blank check. Uh, We've had two significant votes in Congress 
on Ukraine um, military support. I supported the initial tranche, roughly $25 billion. I did not support the second round in December because it was part of a $1.8 trillion uh, omnibus package that wasn't presented the right way. But I will say this, um, the, uh, the military weaponry that we've given Ukraine, the HIMARS, the Javelins, the Stingers, the Patriot uh, defense uh, apparatus has been extremely successful in terms of this uh, war with, with Putin and, and Russia. And so I still think there's broad support, uh, but it has to be with uh, an appropriate audit, making sure money is spent appropriately uh, and that uh, it's not a blank check. Last week uh, in a House Intelligence Committee hearing, public hearing, you said that you believe the FBI searched your name multiple times in an intelligence database. You called it an egregious violation of your privacy. Um, You are uh, also leading a working group to reauthorize Section 702, which would allow the FBI to continue this type of surveillance. Um, Help us understand that, because it seems like there have been some FISA abuses, including possibly with you. Well, we had an open hearing with the FBI director and other members of the Intelligence Committee last week. I think it's important for the public to know what FISA is, Jake. Uh, The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is a program put in place post 9-11 to go after bad guys overseas uh, and many of our adversaries overseas. It's not in place uh, to spy on American citizens. And unfortunately, we've had too many instances where civil liberties have been violated, uh, where uh, privacy rights have been violated. And as we look at reauthorization of FISA that has to be done by the end of this year, which is very important to our intelligence services, what we uh, articulated to the FBI director last week is there has to be reforms. I'm proud to be the chair of the 702 working group as a former federal prosecutor. I understand the importance, but it is not going to be a clean reauthorization. We're going to have to have reforms, safeguards put in place to make sure civil liberties and egregious cases and violations can no longer happen to American citizens. Has anyone from the FBI reached out to explain uh, how and why an FBI analyst searched your personal data? Well, uh, what we heard from Director Ray last week was uh, a number of apologies. I think they've recognized that they've put in uh, uh, new measures. Uh, you know, this, uh, this apparently occurred back in 17 and 18. In 2021, they put in new measures. Um, but we're going to continue to have conversations uh, with the FBI and others in the intelligence community to make sure uh, that we are putting in proper safeguards for the American people. What I tell people, Jake, is 85% of the FISA Act works well. It's the 15% that involves issues like what happened with the Carter Page uh, FISA application, what happened with Russia collusion, and what's happened with other wrongful queries. We hope to clean up those type of activities uh, when we present it to the Congress later this year. All right, Republican Congressman Darren LaHood of Illinois, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Up next, there's a recording of a third call that Donald Trump made to Georgia officials to try to overturn the 2020 election. A third call. What does he say? And who's heard this tape? In our politics lead in Georgia, Fulton County investigators have another recording of a phone call that former President Donald Trump made to the then Georgia House Speaker, try to overturn, based on election lies, the state's 2020 election results. That's according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In that phone call, Trump asked the fellow Republican, quote, to convene a special session of the legislature to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's narrow victory, unquote. This comes after five jurors on the special grand jury spoke exclusively to the newspaper, 
Former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman, uh, Ackerman rather, joins me now. And Nick, uh, what do you think prosecutors are, are thinking about this third phone call? It doesn't sound as though he made an illegal request, uh, it, a diluted one perhaps, but not illegal. Well, I, I think it's all part of the same picture, and I think it is illegal. Uh, what he was trying to do, based on a bunch of falsehoods about uh, convicts um, voting, uh, people on registered voting, dead people voting, trying to get people to basically overturn the election and give it to him instead of Biden. Uh, and it was all based on lies. Uh, you had the same lies spewed to uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger, um, and the same lies that were spread by Rudy Giuliani, who showed up at the legislature to try and do the same thing. So it's all part of the picture, and it's Donald Trump on tape. You know, we don't know the exact date yet of that. We don't know exactly what the tape says. Uh, but based on everything else we know, uh, it probably fits the same pattern of the kinds of calls that Donald Trump uh, was making to people like Rusty Bowers in Arizona, where essentially he was spewing the same lies about the election uh, to get it overturned. So to me, this is just more of the evidence against Donald Trump that the district attorney is going to use there in her indictment. Uh, and at the end of the day, the star witness against Donald Trump is going to be Donald Trump on tape. So we don't have the recording. I want to read you this quote from one of the Fulton County grand jurors to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, in which the juror said, quote, a lot's going to come out sooner or later, and it's going to be massive. It's going to be massive, unquote. Um, how do you interpret that quote? Oh, I, I think it means that there is going to be an indictment of all of the main players here, Donald Trump, uh, John Eastman, um, Mark Meadows, um, and Rudy Giuliani. I think this is going to be a blockbuster indictment. Uh, and like I say, the chief witness here is going to wind up being Donald Trump, who's on tape with Brad Raffensperger, on tape with the chief investigator for the secretary of state. And now is on, we find out is on tape uh, with the head of the main assembly in Georgia. Uh, and we also know that he had a conversation that was similar with Governor Kemp. So there's the evidence is piling up here big time, basically. All right, Nick Ackerman, thank you so much. Appreciate it as always. Good to see you. Coming up, a push to end the stigma around taking care of your mental health. Coming up next, the lawmaker coming forward with her story, hoping it inspires others. Stay with us. Returning to our politics lead, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that Fulton County investigators have an audio recording of a phone call that then-President Trump made to the Georgia House Speaker, pushing for a special session of the legislature to convene so that the legislature could overturn the will of the voters, Joe Biden's 2020 victory in Georgia. Source tells CNN such a recording exists. Our political experts are here to discuss. Uh, and Sarah, let me start with you. The Georgia case, and then there's the New York case, the investigation of Trump's uh, alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. They're guaranteed to stay in the headlines, but it actually could help him in some ways, I think. This is always a weird dynamic with Trump because there's oftentimes this rally round Trump effect right, where uh, it makes voters, when he is being attacked, when he is aggrieved, this is kind of his sweet spot. And voters tend to rush to his defense. And even in the 2024 context, some of these other candidates will feel like they need to defend him, and they'll rush to his defense. And he loves it 
when everyone is talking about him, right? He's able to take the lemons of an indictment and turn it into PR lemonade for himself where, hey, 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 everyone's talking about me and that's, that's, what, I, that's what I like to be happening. And yet, and yet, uh, Congressman Chip Roy, mm-hmm. uh, very conservative uh, Republican from your home state of Texas, he has endorsed Ron DeSantis, who hasn't even officially declared that he's running. Uh, two of Trump's first endorsers in 2016, uh, Lou Barletta and a different congressman, right. Uh, they've come out in favor of DeSantis. Maybe there is a, a bit of fatigue, because I'm talking about diehards now, a bit of fatigue. There, there could be. But what I'm waiting to see is when is somebody going to take him on? It's fine if you think DeSantis is better. Maybe he is for, for Congressman Roy or former Congressman Barletta. But they have to reject Trump. They have to explain to voters why they need to reject Trump, a person who at least 30 or 40 percent of their party absolutely loves and it may be that particularly this Georgia case, I think, I think Sarah's right about the New York case especially. From what I've read in the papers, it doesn't seem like, uh, frankly, a terribly uh, uh, problematic thing for Trump. It may help him uh, paying off a, uh, somebody he had an affair with. The Georgia case, this tape from, from the now we've just learned that the president, then president called the then speaker, David Ralston, that's the third different call that we have on tape. This was a multi-front war in Georgia, not to pay off a, 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 a mistress, but to turn over an election, to take the votes away from millions of Americans. But somebody in the Republican Party who wants to take on Trump has to take him on. I, I yeah. don't understand why they just pussyfoot around. Now, you've interviewed the New Hampshire governor, right, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Sununu, who's thinking about uh, running at the gridiron last year, he referred to Trump as "quote effing crazy," uh, uh, which he has not taken back or said he was joking about. Uh, he, um, do you think he's going to run? And actually, in a previous uh, interview, he told me that he didn't regret saying that. Actually, um, like a lot of these other folks, he seems to be taking the steps and gearing up to, to running. We'll we'll see what happens. You asked about other Republicans potentially taking him on, though. In an interview over the weekend, Asa Hutchinson told me that if Trump is indicted, that he should drop out of the presidential race. That he sees it as a distraction, and that with Trump, it'll it'll just be a circus. Hmm. What do you think? Is there any Republican? We do see a lot of pussyfooting around uh, after DeSantis came out. Uh, more inter-isolationist uh, on, on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm generalizing. That's not right, really right, was. Right. But, but less enthusiastic about participation. Uh, Nick, and, and Trump said he was basically copying him. Uh, Nikki Haley weighed in to say, Trump's right. He is stopping it. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're kind of at the, the, the juvenile stage of this. But, you know, you had Mike Pence, speaking of the gridiron, come out just last weekend and say, you know, that, that, um, that Trump was wrong about January 6th and he was at fault. And he also came out on the, the more um, establishment Republican side of Ukraine. So you are going to start to see these dividing lines. And the real question is, where are GOP voters going to go? Because let's not forget, yes, at this point, you do have Congressman uh, endorsing Ron DeSantis. Mike Pence endorsed Ted Cruz before he was Trump's vice presidential pick. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things that could move. Yeah, it was kind of as if memory serves, it was kind of like I'm with Cruz, but Trump would also be great. Right. He praised Trump, praised Trump, praised Trump in the speech. And they said, and I'm for Cruz. Yeah. And I'm for Cruz. Speaking, speaking of Ukraine for one sec, there's this new Quinnipiac poll showing voters are evenly split over President uh, Biden's Ukraine policy. Uh, Biden's Ukraine response, 45 uh, percent approve. 47 percent disapprove. Um, Do you think that support is waning in general? Yeah, especially among Republicans. I mean, there was a sub question that found that it was actually, uh, you know, almost uh, half of Republicans thought Joe Biden was doing too much in Ukraine. I cannot tell you 
what a shift this is in the Republican Party. The Republican Party used to be the foreign policy party, the, the party that supported the war in Iraq. And now uh, it, is a, it is a much more isolationist party. There's a reason that Ron DeSantis decided uh, to basically take Trump's line on Ukraine and say that, you know, this is just a territorial skirmish. It's not in America's, you know, key interest. And it's because I do these focus groups with Republican voters all the time. And the way that they talk about it is, hey, we should be solving problems here at home. We should be focused on the border. We should not be focused on wars in Europe. And that is just such a shift in the Republican Party. And while the establishment is pushing back, base voters, they want that isolationist foreign policy. And let's look deeper in those numbers. Here's the, the, the partisan divide over helping Ukraine when asked if the U.S. is doing too much to help Ukraine. Forty-seven percent of Republicans say yes. Only 11 percent of Democrats, 30 percent of independence. Um, do you see that when you're out there talking to voters? Because, you know, we just had we just interviewed Congressman Darren LaHood. Uh, he's a, a conservative Republican. And he did the whole thing. No blank checks needs to be accountability. But he's a supporter uh, of, of help for Ukraine. But you are consistently seeing what you're describing and polling among Republicans. But it's also important to remind people at home that Congress recently passed a big tranche of aid to Ukraine. That's supposed to last the rest of the fiscal year. So there's not going to actually be a debate in Congress again about how much to spend on Ukraine until that money runs out, which could be way later in the year. This isn't something that's that's going to come up in the near future. Is, likely. The, is the White House worried about this? I mean, this they this, ought to be. Th- yeah. They ought to be. I think their policy has been spot on. I think the president has become the leader of the free world that Donald Trump never was. I think he's been fantastic. But he hasn't sold it enough to the American people. It's not too late. The clock is ticking before anything he does will be seen as partisan. But he needs a bipartisan national effort to advise or to, to explain to the American people why this is a good deal. Go back and look at what FDR said about Lend-Lease. I looked it up today. In, in March of 1941, he gave a great speech, actually at the Washington Correspondents' Dinner, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where he sold Lend-Lease, where he talked about freedom versus tyranny. And it's many of the same issues today. And back then, Lend-Lease was just what we're doing now, which is, like, we'll give you the tools, you finish the job, as FDR said. So he needs to build a bipartisan uh, a commitment to selling this to the American people. You can't just do it at the elite level and hope a few committee chairs go along. But that is happening in Congress. I mean, yes. it is bipartisan in Congress it is. generally in Congress, especially right. in the United States Senate. I mean, right. and, and the vice president, she talked about this in Munich. Zelensky well, I mean, uh, himself came and right, Congress right. and right. gave that speech. But they uh, Biden went to, to Ukraine as exactly. well. I mean... I don't know that yeah. I don't know that citing lend lease is going to help his argument. <laughs> no, not, to, not to voters, but it'll help with Joe Biden, who who put the largest portrait right. in the Oval Office is FDR. But the whole argument from people like Trump is this is going to lead to World War Three, and I don't know if citing legislation that helped. No, no, get I don't, the, I, I you understand my point. You understand, it's a model, not a message. You understand my point. Yeah. Thanks everyone for being here. Turning to our health lead today marks one month since Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman checked into Walter Reed Hospital to address. His clinical depression, a source close to the senator, tells CNN that he's doing, quote, extremely well and could be discharged within the next two weeks. His wife, Giselle, posted these photographs recently with the caption, It Gets Better. CNN's Lauren Fox sits down with Democratic Senator Tina Smith from Minnesota, who opens up about her own battle with depression and the power of sharing her story. These millions of Americans deserve our help. Senator Tina Smith never expected to be on the Senate floor talking about her own experiences with depression. When it started for me, I thought I was just having a bad day, or really a series of bad days. But in 2019, the then-freshman senator was working on a bill aimed at expanding access to mental health. The more she worked, the more she thought about revealing what she wasn't saying. 
I had my own experience with depression when I was in college and then when I was older, um, you know, young mom. And it started to feel um, just less than honest to not just put it out there. I realized that there was power in me telling the story, me particularly, me being a United States senator, um, somebody who supposedly has everything all together all the time. For Smith, the depression both times caught her by surprise, saying it felt like the color was draining out of her world. She lost interest in activities she loved and withdrew from friends and family. The thing that's so treacherous about um, depression in particular is that you think that the thing that is wrong with you is you. Smith got help. In her 30s, her therapist gave her a diagnosis. You're clinically depressed. That's my diagnosis. I think that you'd benefit from medication um, to help you. And I was like, I don't want to do that because then that's not going to be me inside my brain. Did it take time for you to accept the idea of medication? Yeah, it did. It did take time. And again, you know, medication works for some people, not for others. Everybody is in a different position. But um, it it did very much help me to um, adjust my brain chemistry so that I could rediscover the things that made me happy. Mental illness affects one in five Americans every year. But for politicians, disclosing a battle with mental illness has long carried political risks. Congratulations, Senator. It's why Senator John Fetterman's announcement in February he was seeking treatment for clinical depression has started to change the conversation. Every time um, somebody like John or me Um, is open about their own experiences with um, mental illness or, you know, mental health challenges, it it just breaks down that wall a little bit more about people saying, oh, it's possible to be open and honest and not have the whole world come crashing down on you. It hasn't always been that way. In 1972, Thomas Eagleton dropped off George McGovern's presidential ticket after it was revealed he'd undergone treatment for depression and received electroshock therapy. This decision is one of the most heartrending. Former Representative Patrick Kennedy, now a leading advocate on mental health, struggled with addiction and bipolar disorder in Congress. For years, he said he worked to cover it up. When I was in Congress, uh, I did everything I could to keep everybody from finding out that I needed help. Lawmakers are hopeful that the stigma around mental illness may finally be shifting. There are consequences to the things you say and talk about, but uh, I think in a circumstance like this that it's, um, you know, it helps the conversation. I think it helps people realize and understand uh, the impact that this, uh, that this disease has on, on people all across the country. And it's been decades since Tina Smith experienced depression, since she used medication for her depression. But she says sharing her story back in 2019, it's really given her a dialogue with constituents, with voters, with colleagues who come up to her and share their own stories, Jake. So this really does have an impact in making people feel like they too can come forward. Interesting stuff. Lauren Fox, thank you so much for that report. Coming up, Florida beaches are about to be entangled in a giant blob of seaweed that smells. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters lead, what's that smell? It's a giant blob of seaweed, and it's headed right for Florida. The 5,000-mile-wide belt of sargassum is expected to be the largest on record, and when it peaks in size in July, could be a serious damper on tourism 
in Florida. Let's bring in CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Bill, what is behind these massive blooms? Well, this is a natural occurring phenomenon. There's actually a Sargasso Sea in the middle of the Atlantic, but normally it is surrounded by ocean currents, a gyre that keeps it in place as it decomposes. This one broke off and has doubled in size in a month. And scientists think maybe it has to do with uh, warmer waters due to climate change, nutrient pollution, phosphorus, nitrogen. We've seen that sort of trigger the red tide and the toxic algae blooms around Florida as well. It's hitting the Yucatan uh, Peninsula now. The beach is there. It probably wouldn't hit Florida until July or so. And what can be done to prevent this from hitting the beaches? Well, I was talking to some experts actually up in Maine who work with seaweed as a carbon capture tool. And they say there are plenty of guys uh, with, you know, trawler rigs, two boats pulling a net that could get in front of it sort of corral it, and then they would chop it up and sink it in deep ocean, which actually would be a net benefit for the planet because it captures carbon and sends it, locks it away uh, deep on the ocean bed there as well. But right now there's no incentive to do that. As you get closer, when you think about six-foot drifts of rotting uh, you know, seaweed, Maybe some states like Florida might invest in, in guys getting out there in front of it right now. But uh, science says so they've been watching this and it's gotten bigger and denser year to year. And it's actually 200 times bigger than the blob this time last year. Wow. All right. Well, Governor DeSantis, you heard Bill. Your move. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Staying with the environment, we turn from the waters off Florida to a mile high above the American West. There are growing concerns about the air quality over the great state of Colorado. And today, that state's Democratic governor announced a new plan to help clear the air above his state, targeting one industry in particular. In a letter released today, Governor Jared Polis writes, it is estimated that oil and gas extraction activities are responsible for almost half of total ozone in the Denver metro area. These emissions have not yet been subject to actions that require steady measurable emissions reductions on a schedule commensurate with meeting our air quality challenges. And today, that will change, unquote. Governor Polis joins us now. Governor, thanks for joining us. What specifically are you demanding from the oil and gas industry, and do you have the legal standing to make that demand? So, yes, we do. And essentially what we're requiring is that oil and gas activities in most of our state where they occur, the Denver metro region, will have to reduce nitrogen oxide emissions. That's the main precursor to ozone. Ozone is the the main pollutant in air that causes, you know, coughing, makes asthma worse. It's particularly bad in summer. So we're going to reduce ozone emissions by about over 30 percent within just two years, by 2025 in oil and gas industry. That technology exists today. Some oil and gas operators already use it. They're all going to be using it by 2025 in our state, and it's going to make our air cleaner and our people healthier. Have you heard any pushback from the oil and gas industry? Are they asking you uh, about balancing the economic impact of this decision? You know what? This is available today, uh, and the air crisis is very real in our state today. We're also requiring that there's a 50% reduction in ozone emissions uh, within six and a half years by by 2030. So again, this will be done in a way where we know this technology is here. We know that they can replace diesel engines that are very uh, that cause a lot of pollution with electric uh, and new technologies to do this in a better way. I would add they're not being singled out. We're also moving towards electric vehicles. We're also focused on industrial sources of pollution. But certainly when oil and gas is responsible, for about 40% of the overall ozone, there needs to be an aggressive plan in that sector. And today we laid it out and we're going to get it done. There are a lot of threats uh, that scientists say are exacerbated uh, by climate change that are coming to your state. 
in addition to uh, what you just talked about, there, there are fires, uh, floods, uh, droughts. Um, how does a governor even begin to prepare for these looming crises? Uh, that's a great question, Jake, because what the, the sort of weather and related crises are happening more often than ever before. I've only been governor five years, but in the five years I've been governor, we've had the three largest wildfires in the history of the state of Colorado. Uh, it was less than a decade ago, about a decade ago, when we had a historic flood. Uh, we've had statewide drought. So in many ways, this is the new normal. We're upping the bar on fire resiliency. We're getting additional capacity for aerial interventions. We're looking at how we do land use and develop in and around open space where there's potential fire risk. Um, but we need to not only take action on climate change, we also need to make sure we have in place the way that we can survive with this new normal. I want to ask you a, a, another question, uh, not about the environment. Uh, there's a new poll from Gallup uh, suggesting that members of your party, Democrats, now side with Palestinians over Israelis when it comes to that conflict. 49 percent uh, uh, say their sympathies are with Palestinians, 38 percent Israelis, 13 uh, percent neither, both or no opinion. That's an 11 point increase in sympathy for Palestinians uh, in the last year, moving to support Palestinians for Democrats uh, as a supporter of Israel, as a Jewish American, as a Democrat. Um, what do you think? I think Gallup's asking the wrong question. I think where most Democrats are, certainly where I am, is that, of course, we believe in the existence of a democratic Jewish state of Israel. I also believe in a sovereign Palestinian state. Uh, I think that any solution that works needs to make sure that it honors both Israel and Palestine. I value a lasting and enduring uh, peaceful coexistence in, in the area. I think the two-state solution is the best one we have. So I think Gallup, Gallup needs to update their question and talk about a solution that works for everybody. All right, but that is their question. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting answer, but that is their question. Uh, and I'm wondering why you think it is that when asked with which group do you ha- do you, are your sympathies with, uh, Democrats for the first time in the history of this poll are now siding more with Palestinians. Well, again, I, I think the Democrats, by and large, absolutely overwhelming majorities value a Jewish democratic state of Israel, uh, also value a sovereign uh, Palestinian state. Obviously, the difficulties in figuring out the borders, uh, the transition, what happens to Jewish enclaves in Palestine, what happens with Palestinians in, in the state of Israel. Those are the details. I think that's a broad vision uh, for peace in the Middle East that has the broad support uh, of Democrats and hopefully many Republicans and independents as well, because frankly, it's the only way to end conflict in the region. Colorado Governor uh, Jared Polis, thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still ahead, the warning to China that could result in TikTok being banned in the United States. Stay with us. Topping our tech lead today, the Biden administration has an ultimatum for TikTok in the United States. Either the Chinese-owned parent company needs to sell its stake in the U.S. version of the very popular social media platform, or TikTok will be banned. This comes after more than 20 states and the federal government banned the app from official, official government devices over concerns that the data collected from users' phones would, could end up in the hands of the Chinese government. Let's bring in Axios senior media reporter and CNN media analyst, Sarah Fisher. Sarah, always good to see you. So TikTok's already on more than 100 million American phones, including my daughter's. Would China's divestment actually solve any of these data security issues? Well, of course, TikTok is arguing no, it wouldn't. 
But obviously, our government thinks that it would, and there's a couple reasons for that. One, if you're a Chinese company, you have an obligation to share the data with the Chinese government. And so if it's not owned by a Chinese company, our government clearly thinks that we would be able to solve that problem. And then two, there's the issue of content moderation oversight. If it's owned by a U.S. company, a U.S. company would have oversight over how the algorithms work, how it's filtering content. And that has been an issue with TikTok here in the U.S. in the past. Yeah, because there's uh, all sorts of questions about what our kids are seeing versus the Chinese version of TikTok, which has all sorts of educational instruction. Today, the U.K. also banned TikTok from government devices, falling in line with the European Union's similar ban. Take a listen to one conservative member of parliament earlier today. Mr. Speaker, this is a precautionary move. We know that there is already limited use of TikTok across government, but it is also good cyber hygiene. Is there any concrete evidence that TikTok is a threat to national security, whether in Europe or the United States? Not on government devices, but there have been two examples where TikTok has used its app to look at private citizens' data. The first example, which became timely today, is that there was evidence, and TikTok has conceded, that employees have used access to U.S. users' data who are journalists. Then the second example was that report from 2019. The Guardian said that TikTok was using its reach to sort of filter out Chinese algorithm or Chinese hashtags and information about the CCP. So we do have two examples that they've used the app to control something on a device, but nothing in a government so far. Yeah, and that's, of course, all the only ones we know about, right? And Forbes has this new report, according to a source uh, in a position to know that the FBI and the Justice Department are investigating ByteDance's use, use of TikTok to spy on journalists. ByteDance is the parent company of TikTok. Do I yes. have that right? Uh, to use it, and, and a spokesperson for ByteDance told Forbes, we have strongly condemned the actions of the individuals found to have been involved, and they are no longer employed at ByteDance. Our internal investigation is still ongoing. We will cooperate with any official investigations when brought to us. Um, So they're still doing this. Yes. And in both of those instances that we have just talked about, the Guardian report where they were filtering out CCP stuff and with the spying on journalists, they've conceded in both times that things were true. After they got caught. After they caught caught. And so that's why you can imagine why our regulators are nervous that there are other things going on behind the scenes. But I'm glad you mentioned that about ByteDance and the ownership. What's also weird to hear is that ByteDance is not just fully owned by Chinese people. It's 60% owned by international investing firms. Think about Tiger Global and SoftBank. Those aren't Chinese companies that need to report data. So when CFIUS is saying to TikTok, you got to spin this thing out, you know, the question becomes, who's spinning what out? Is it the founders of the company that own 20% that are Chinese citizens? Is it the employees that are mostly Chinese citizens that own 20%? Or is it the 60% of investment firms? We don't really know, and TikTok says they don't really know. Yeah, I mean, all I'll say is I used to have TikTok. I used to post TikToks. And I deleted it from my phone. Too many national security people and smart people like you kept coming on the show and making me think, I I really shouldn't have this on my phone. And you have alternatives. Facebook has Reels. Snapchat has Spotlight. That wasn't the case in 2020 when Trump tried to ban TikTok. Don't forget Instagram also. Yes. Uh, Well, that's Facebook. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're all awful. But but I hear you. Sarah Fisher, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcast all two hours just sitting there waiting for you to dig in like a delicious Philly cheesesteak. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.